Hello, welcome back to Surf Splendor. I'm your host, David Scales. We are actually on hiatus right now in between the Christmas and New Year's holiday, which, um, I don't know, maybe I should apologize for. I feel bad. I open my phone and look at um, all the podcasts that I want to listen to, and I see that it's either reruns or just a one-minute episode of them saying that they're not going to be posting an episode today. Um, So I didn't want to do that to you, but I will give you a rebroadcast. And what I'm going to rebroadcast is one of my favorite episodes that just based on the download numbers, I feel maybe got overlooked. Um, It's episode three. I think it was number three. It was with Tom Parrish. And Tom Parrish was this iconic surfboard shaper in the 70s. And, and I mean, he still is. He currently still works in Maui. But um, he was part of the lightning bolt stable of shapers, working side by side with Jerry Lopez, making boards for Jeff Hackman. Um, so really influential in the Hawaii North Shore scene back in the 70s, kind of the golden era of surfing or, you know, what I certainly think of it as being. And then additionally, he was involved in the founding of Quicksilver, actually, and bringing the license over from Australia. And Tom's got a fascinating story. He tells it uh, way better than I can, you know, in a short one-minute intro. So I loved that that conversation that I had with Tom, uh, one of the first conversations of Surf Splendor that kind of helped form the show. And I'm grateful to say that since then I've maintained a friendship with Tom. We've seen one another a couple of different times and um, I saw him a couple of weeks ago actually and he's doing really well and he's been busy shaping internationally actually. He gets opportunities to go to France and shape and Spain and Japan and and so it's cool just to reconnect with him and and this show is kind of the vehicle for that. So just another one of the benefits of doing Surf Splendor. So anyways, I hope that you enjoyed today's show, whether or not you've actually heard it before when it was originally broadcast about a year and a half ago. Other than that, we're planning an episode of Surf News. Scott Bass is out of town for the holidays, but but we're planning to get back together next week when he gets back, and we'll recap the Pipe Masters and the year and uh, cover all the current news looking into 2015. All right. Thank you again for listening. I will be back at the end of the show to sign us off. Enjoy. Tom Parrish is best known for working in Hawaii and working with Hawaiian surfers, although his story begins in an unlikely place. He grew up in Arrowhead Mountain, California, which is about two hours from the coast. You know, it was like water skiing in the summer and snow skiing in the winter before I got involved in surfing. With Those were the two activities then. Okay. And then um, at some point, um, my dad got us a house down in Newport. And, um, Where about in Newport? At the River Jetties, you know, I just yeah. let the white water bash, bash into me. It was like really a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so, and then it was really like surf movies. You know, the, the surf movies uh, that show the big waves in Hawaii were, like, really catching me. And then we moved back up to the mountains, and I kind of would drive down to the beach and still was water skiing and snow skiing a lot, kind of alternating all three of the activities. Yeah. And then um, came to the end of high school, and I was just ready, you know. I just, the day after high school, I moved to Hawaii. 
I was already making boards in um, California. Oh, you were? Yeah, I'd, I'd been making boards there for a couple of years. Nothing great. Just for yourself? Or yeah, for and all the buddies. Okay. You know, I kind of started by um, uh, stripping off uh, the glass off of all longboards. Yeah, I've heard that story before. <laughs> and, uh, it's what you do when you don't have money. Yeah. And then um, I went. I remember that I bought. Went down to Clark's and bought like ten reject blanks, and made boards for everybody in the neighborhood, and just sort of gave them away. So this was down at the Laguna Niguel, mm -hmm. you know, where he was for so long. There was like nothing around there then. Yeah. And so by the end of those ten, they were a little more bearable. Still nothing great. And so by the time I moved to Hawaii, I'd probably made maybe 50 boards. Surfline Hawaii was a surf label and board shop in Honolulu at the time. They had Dick Brewer, Jerry Lopez, and many of Hawaii's best surfboard shapers. Tom went in and inquired about work. The interview process was more than Tom expected. Uh, I remember the first, it was Fred Schwartz at the time, and he said, okay, well, we'll try you out with three. He goes, we don't, you know, the stuff you're showing me doesn't look like it's really what we need, but if you can manage to do better than that and bring us in three, you know, maybe we got a spot for you. And I think at the time, a, f a completed board was like $65. Blank, glass job, everything. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I went home, I had like cardboard off one of the spare bedrooms and made that the glassing room. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, had the little shed outside as a shaping room and then out, totally outdoors was the um, sanding and polishing. Yeah. And so um, I tried my hardest. I brought him in three the first week and he, he looked at me and he's like, I can't believe you put our stickers on these. Really? <laughs> Get them out of here before anybody sees them. Yikes. <laughs> And that was like all the money I had. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I arrived in Hawaii with no money, just a stupid kid. Yeah. And so he goes, I'll give you one more chance. Bring me three more next week and otherwise we can't work together. So I had to like, you know, take those home. I had nothing to do with them and scrounge the money to do three more. And finally that, um, those three, he let me in. And I, so I was the bottom guy on the, on the roster at Surfline for few years and at that time it was like all the that was the biggest shop in town it had uh, jerry and brewer and bk and reno i mean it, everybody that later went to lightning well at that time was at surfline mm. and so and randy rarick was doing really well then too so i was really stoked just to be the the low guy on the totem pole and then when um jerry started lightning bolt there was like this exodus and everybody wanted to be with Lightning Ball. If you watch any surf footage of Hawaii in the 70s, you're likely to see that iconic Lightning Bolt logo emblazoned across the deck of the surfboard. The brand skyrocketed to success under the complimentary business partnership of Jerry Lopez and Jack Shipley. Jerry had three levels of involvement and was laser sharp with all three. The way he surfed, the clean way he shaped, and his acute perception on people and their motives. Jack Shipley was able to convey Jerry's passions into a karmic, visionary style of business that became infectious to the buying public. He never sold a board by trying to sell the board. He sold boards by caring about his customers and getting them what they wanted. It helped that Jerry was renowned as Mr. Pipeline. 
he and a small group of Hawaii's finest surfers made the Lightning Bolt brand synonymous with Hawaiian surfing. Meanwhile, Tom had continued to refine his craft at Surfline Hawaii, and then Jack Shipley offered him an entry-level position at Lightning Bolt. Tom took advantage of the opportunity, and it positioned him to develop key relationships that would ultimately define his career. Um, the deal going on there was um, Barry and Jerry and Reno were all such great surfers that making boards was kind of secondary to them. Really? You know, I mean, their, their life was to be in the water. Making boards was just a way to make that happen. Yeah. And, you know, I could surf okay, but I, I knew I was never going to be any, anything like any of them. Yeah. And so I saw my um, niche as, um, you know, working hard. And, you know, like, I kind of, by then, had developed kind of a feel for making boards. And so I really, really um, took it seriously. You know, I took making boards as serious as they took their surfing. What was the relationship like with them as shapers, though? I mean, were they, um, you know, mentoring you in a sense, or...? At that point, no, I didn't even exist to them. Oh, right. You know, at that point, I, w I, w I don't think I even had caught their attention. So you were just doing all the work that they weren't interested in doing, maybe, and making the boards they... It was a way that there was um, demand, okay. because they, they, they weren't filling all their demand. Yeah. Right? They were, they were putting a few boards in here and there, and they would go out right away. But, but because of them, the lightning bolt symbol had already become so in demand that, that Jack was able to sell many more boards than those three could make. And so, you know, I started getting boards out there. And then, um, at the, you know, at this time I was still glassing too. Oh, okay. I was shaping and glassing, doing the whole board. And so at some point, um, Jeff Hackman came by and um, wanted me to glass one of his brewers. He was getting boards from Brewer at the time. And I, w I had become an okay glasser by then, and I don't know how he knew, but you know, for him it was just a way to get something done fast and cheap and easy. Jeff Hackman was a competitive surfing powerhouse who went on to become a founding partner in Quicksilver America and France. He won the first Pipeline Masters event in 1971 and the Bells Beach Contest in 1976 and the unofficial World Championships in 1974 and 75. This fortuitous meeting between Jeff was about to alter Tom's career immeasurably. Jeff's need for quality equipment and Tom's eagerness to learn gave way to a fast improvement in Tom's boards and also a quick rise in his visibility. He, I didn't really realize this at the time, but he was like really, really finicky about what he liked, even to Brewer. And so, um, you know, he had no qualms about rejecting even a Brewer. Hmm. You know, as magic as, as every Brewer was, for Jeff it wasn't, you know, he didn't really make that um, distinction between who made it. It was just if he liked it. Yeah. So I glassed him his board and... Um, and I said, you know, if for some reason you don't like it, let me try. And sure enough, he didn't like it. And he came back and he goes, okay, you want to try? And I don't think he even knew anything about my boards, you know. And they really weren't that good then. And, but I made him one and I don't think he liked it. I don't really remember. But, you know, like he let me keep trying. Yeah. And he was so, um, he was so critical, 
not in a negative way, but but he was just so um, so intent on getting what he wanted that it, it really forced me to um, improve fast, hmm. you know, and it made me a lot more versatile to to listen to what he wanted and try to do it, and then have him go ride it so fast and. Every time we'd make one, I'd just like glass it up really fast. So we were like turning over boards right away. Yeah. And once people started seeing him on my boards, then all of a sudden it shot me into a whole nother level. And that was where I finally kind of got to a place where probably Jerry and Barry and Reno sort of noticed me. Okay. And we worked together for several years and did a, a Hackman model through Lightning Bolt and you know, all of a sudden I, I sort of got into a much different league and kind of became not quite an equal of Jerry and Barry and Reno, but but more than what I was. Yeah. What year do you think that Oh, uh, By then place? it was probably about 75 or okay. 70, something like that. You know, that had been like a couple of years working together. and Sure. And the same thing kept happening with Jerry and Barry and Reno. They, they could never fill the demand. So by now... I had a better name and the boards were better and so now I could really produce. And I started getting like a huge following in Honolulu of the local guys. Then I got to work with Jerry, you know, then I sort of started becoming friends with Jerry and, um, you know, then he kind of met, you know, then there was some mentoring going on. If Jeff Hackman's approval validated Tom Parrish's arrival as a shaper, Jerry Lopez cemented it. By the early 1970s, Jerry Lopez was enjoying worldwide surfing recognition. He had popularized what had become the world's most famous and revered surf spot, and he established the tube ride as surfing's prized goal. He would go on to pioneer famous Indonesian left reef breaks, Uluwatu and Jilan, where he would prepare for the winter pipeline swells. Tom developed his relationship with Jerry while he was spending time between Oahu and Maui. By then he had the Maui shop going and so we, we ended up having an arrangement where um, for 10 days out of the month I would go to Maui and he would come to Oahu and he would do his Oahu boards from my shop and I would do the Maui shop boards from uh, his house. And so we would like trade houses, sure. cars, and shaping room. Wow. So it was like, man, I was like in heaven, right? Imagine being on Maui, driving Jerry Lopez's car, working out of his shaping room. I felt like, you know, God's right-hand man. Totally. <laughs> it was like the best, it was kind of the best of times. And then, you know, there was sometimes overlap where we were both in the same place and we would work together and, you know, I kind of really learned a lot because he, he, Jerry had a really different approach too. Um, you know, he kind of learned from Brewer, but it didn't take long for him to develop his own style, which was really nothing like Brewer's. Yeah. You know, his craftsmanship's always been just, like, incredible. Yeah. But his design ideas were really much different than Brewer's because yeah. um, he was much more interested in pipeline. And, and Brewer's design is really much more oriented to um, Sunset, hmm. you know, kind of a more all-around kind of board. And Jerry's are kind of specific to pipeline. Mm -hmm. And Jeff was always a Brewer guy. So, um, to me, I had the two, yeah. two really different influences, um, but to me, the two that I kind of liked the most. Mm. And I, uh, you know, kind of through studying both of their boards, I kind of developed what I thought was the middle ground. 
and I think that was what um, kind of helped me make boards for a lot of the other guys because kind of back to the part about working with Jeff once people once people saw Jeff on my boards then um, everybody wanted it you know yeah. and all of a sudden I started getting all these other really good surfers all the guys from um, South Africa and Australia yeah. were all you know at that point in time Jeff was kind of the you know probably one of the best if not you know he was on that same level as Jerry and Barry and Reno yeah and some might even say in, in a sense he was maybe the most versatile of all of them you could put Jeff anywhere and he would he would he would do well I mean he people don't realize it but he was great at pipeline really a big pipeline Jeff was incredible hmm. Tom's experience shaping boards for Jeff Hackman opened opportunities to shape boards for many other world-class surfers. One in particular worth noting is Charlie Smith. He's gone on to become an incredible shaper in his own right. But at the time, Tom Parrish shaped boards for Charlie as he established his reputation as one of the greatest surfers ever at Haleiwa. Back in that time when I started with um getting the boards for um, some of the better guys. I, I was lucky enough also to get Charlie as one of my team riders. And he was like one of my very best team riders. Really? And, and I didn't have that many local guys on the North Shore as team riders. I had a huge clientele of guys buying my boards in Honolulu. But um, most of my team riders were these international guys. So getting a guy like Charlie to ride my boards was... Um, really 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 special to me and um, he's so modest he's not gonna say this but he was so unbelievably good really I mean a lot of the people who know would know that you know once sure. once in a while somebody will surface that knew him from then and will will remark on how unbelievable he was really but he was like the best guy you know Jerry had pipeline Barry and Jeff kind of had sunset. Charlie like dominated Holly Eva for like 15 years. Really? For like 15 years, nobody could touch him. Huh. And Lonnie Akea too, I mean, he, he was, he still is really great, but he was unbelievable as a kid. Was he interested in board design at that point? Yeah, and that was the really other cool thing was um, more than anybody, he would show up at my house and watch his boards get shaped. Really? I mean, he would stand there for hours. So he wasn't shaping at the time, but he just had an interest. Um, I think he kind of was kinda in, a, in a little hobby way, but he wasn't really, um, he wasn't doing it as a job, and he wasn't really, you know, he, we were young then. You know, I was only in my early 20s. He was still in his teens. Yeah. But um, I remember that, I remember remar um, noticing it at the time. I was like, how can a guy that surfs as good as he does spend so much time up here watching basically nothing happen mm -hmm. you know and later when I saw how good he makes boards I now then it all made sense I was like oh this guy was studying mm. this guy was in training for what he was about to become so we've had a relationship for a long time we've been friends for like going on 40 years now I think that's amazing and you know um, at first I was the making his boards and you know uh, maybe showing him a few things but after after I went through my um, exile 
and came back, he was he was like miles ahead of me. Really? And he's been kind of showing me, you know, you know, maybe I'm a little bit back up to speed now, but for a long time he was probably considerably far ahead of me. That's awesome. It has been awesome. I mean, it was super nice of him. Yeah. To kind of like let me back in and you know share with me as openly as he has. And to give back, I mean, you shared with him. I think so. Reciprocal. Yeah, it's been a really, really great friendship in that way, and that's cool. uh, you know now it's like so fun to to work together. I mean, that's that's a whole nother thing. Yeah. You know, to to work on your own. You know, when you're in here doing this stuff, you're really isolated. Mm -hmm. You can easily get isolated from the world. But look at it around, right? You know, I have influence every day. Mm -hmm. Every day I have influence from him. And he's really active in a whole nother set of circles. So together, I think we're way stronger than we would be separately. Yeah. When I was researching Tom Parrish prior to visiting him in Maui, there seemed to be a block of time that was unaccounted for. He mentioned returning from exile when he was talking about Charlie Smith. There isn't a lot written about him, but I had heard rumors that he had abandoned shaping and had been practicing law in Maui for the last decade or so. So I asked Tom about that, and the story he provided was more interesting than I could have imagined. Um, on another note, I read that um, you're practicing law. I am a lawyer. You st are you still practicing? Yes. Well, I mean, I don't do it much, but I still maintain my license. Or what was that process like? I mean, you come over from high school to Hawaii, and it doesn't... Um, you didn't mention any ambition for higher education or college? Oh, no. I had no no desire to so do anything like that. When did that, um, th th when did that start? After Lightning Bolt dissolved, I was, in, I was involved in the start of Quicksilver. Oh, really? Around about 75, I think, Jeff got the license from the Aussie guys to manufacture Quicksilver in the United States. Okay. And so when Jeff brought the license back um, from us, or the, the, uh, the rights to um, produce Quicksilver back from Australia, he asked me if I wanted to be involved and, because we had been involved already for several years. And um, I said, sure, I'd love to. Any, I'd be happy to do anything with you. And so he said, well, um, so are you ready to move back to California to help us make them? And I said, well, I don't, I don't know about that. And um, so he said, well, if you don't want to move back to California and help us make them, then if you want, you can just have the territory of Hawaii. Okay. And I said, oh, that'd be much better. I like that idea. And so um, we didn't, hadn't really defined what it would be, if it was going to be a distributorship or, you know, if it was just going to be a sales rep thing. It was just the territory of Hawaii, which ended up encompassing a lot of different facets. And um, so, you know, nobody really had any money and they, Jeff and went off to California and they tried to find investors and get some money. And finally we started making trunks and little by little I got a little trickle of them coming through to Hawaii. And I don't know if you remember, but that was at a period of really high anti-Aussie sentiment. Oh, okay. So even though Jeff and Jerry and a lot of the hot guys were wearing Quicksilver's made in Australia, 
the idea of marketing an Australian product right at that moment was pretty against the grain. Not to mention that our product right at first wasn't on this, you know, obviously wasn't going to be on the same level as the product, the, the product that the Aussies were producing, which was pretty exceptional at the time. And I had noticed how Grubby Clark had uh, a warehouse over in Hawaii. And um, so I thought, well, instead of, um, you know, we already have a hard product to, to introduce. Instead of making the buyers buy quarterly and trying to just go get money out of them on an imaginary promise, kind of, that we're going to deliver and the product's going to be good, right. why don't we do like Grubby and set up a warehouse over here? And then, um, you know, I can just, uh, I'll have all kinds of advantage for delivery. Right. And so we got a little dungeon, and as soon as we could get a little bit of product together, we started... Um, keeping product over there. So then I was able to go around to the surf shops and say, um, my pitch was, um, if you just try it, just give it a try. I'll give you 30 days invoicing. I'll come and rotate the product if you don't like it. Hmm. In the end, even if you're really that unhappy, I'll just take it back and we'll figure out some way so that you're never gonna get stuck. So, and. At the time, I was kind of at the height of all the shaping things, so I had a really good rapport with all the different shops. Right. And I, I'd like to think I had a pretty good uh, trust relationship with everybody. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So was it I, just board shorts at the time? Yeah, all we had were those um, kind scallop. of the, the scallop. You know, Jerry was wearing them. Jeff was wearing them. You know, a few of the hot guys were wearing them. The, the hot Aussie guys were wearing them. So there was there was kind of a little interest. Okay. Um, and I was like trying to shape boards for somebody if they would wear them. You know, I was trying to use my... Uh, mm what kind of goodwill I might have with the boards to kind of merge it and help it, yeah, have smart. it help Quicksilver. And then, um, I don't know, it wasn't too long after all that that um, encounter with Fast Eddie. I don't know if you know who Eddie Rothman is. I do. But um, I guess Eddie and their hooey had been getting their shorts from OP. 
And so, you know, this is probably a year or so down the line. I mean, we were we were going a little bit, but but up until now, I was still encountering anti-Aussie resistance. Okay. And Eddie, um, and Eddie said, um, you know, we've been getting our trunks from OP, but we feel like we're really doing OP a lot more favor than they're doing us. And they want us to keep paying wholesale. And I'm kind of tired of paying wholesale, so I, I have this idea. How would you feel about, um, we'll switch over to you guys. You gotta give us the trunks free. We're gonna make a model of our own and it'll only be the hooey, um, but we'll only wear yours. And did that require that they put the hooey logo on the trunks? Um, they didn't have the, um, uh, the, uh, the hooey logo wasn't as developed at the time. What they wanted was that uh, gold and red stripe. They wanted square okay. leg trunks. They didn't want the scallop trunk. They wanted the gold and uh, the golden uh, red stripe. I think at a point they uh, started spray painting their that logo on there, but but they didn't have uh, they had quicksilver. They were quicksilver. Okay. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, that's important. And I was thinking to myself, geez, man, do I really want to do this? This yeah. is uh, this is a major step because uh, you know Eddie's faction was kind of the main force of resistance with the Aussie faction. Okay. So you'd have and, to pick sides, essentially. I mean, how am I going to make, the, you know, how's that going to work? Right. And at the same time, I was thinking, how am I ever going to get the Hawaiians to embrace this Aussie mark? I just don't see it happening. And um, no matter how good they are, and no matter how many hot surfers, the, the, the Hawaiian, the force of the Hawaiians isn't a scalloped yeah. Aussie trunk. Right. And... Um, so I finally made the decision that I was going to go with Eddie. And, uh, God, it was like the best thing we ever could have done. Really? All of a sudden, we went from being kind of marginal to kind of having this heavy-handed thug kind of power image. And all of a sudden, Quicksilver went from being kind of on the lighter side to just being as heavy as they come in, the, in terms of impact. And so sales took off? Sales took off, yes, certainly you could say that, but what took off more was the public image. Yeah. And at that time, you know, Hawaii was really the only place on the earth that anybody could say was the central home of surfing. Right. You know, I mean, a lot of places had a lot of surfing going on. For sure, California had more surfers. But at that time, the, the epicenter of surfing was Hawaii. Okay. So to now have Hawaii well established with Quicksilver, as Quicksilver now being kind of more a Hawaiian mark than an Australian mark, and to the Hawaiians anyways, was just huge. Hmm. Just huge. And then we had Aaron Chang come and do a couple of really great ads with the Hui guys underwater at Waimea. I mean, did some just outstanding ads that just gave this impact to it that just shoved it into a whole another stratosphere. Wow. And so then all of a sudden now that, you know, kind of coming back to your point, sales and demand just started like really picking up. And um, I went around to all the surf shops and I said, gee, guys, you know, this is really working. You guys have helped me get it started and it's working. And um, 
you know, I don't want to be ungrateful, but I've got a lot of demand right now that I don't really know what to do with. You know, how do you feel if I open up so-and-so, and how do you feel if I open up so-and-so? I kind of took the took the pulse of everybody, and, you know, everybody's like, no way, don't do it, don't open this guy, and, you know, we're just, we're just now doing good with it. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of came up with this idea that, um, okay, well, I've got to increase the numbers because the, the demand's just way too great. Um, so how about if we made an arrangement where I agree to keep you exclusive, but you agree to get rid of everything else in the shop besides what you make and Quicksilver? Wow. <laughs> it was a huge ask. You know, and I'm just a, I'm just a kid, right? Yeah. I, I wasn't a lawyer then. I, I didn't know what you could do and what you couldn't do. I just was just running, you know. Made sense. Just by what felt right. Yeah. And I thought, um, I really want to keep it exclusive. I really want to keep it in the surf shops. I really want to honor the idea that these guys have helped us. But at the same time, how am I going to do numbers that these department stores would do? And so um, they were, they went for it. And um, so all of a sudden, you know, the presence of Quicksilver in every surf shop just jumped like by five times. Wow. And then we went around and... Uh, got uh, each, I had some friends of mine who were good carpenters, had them do these like Quicksilver corners. Oh. So we did some really neat little um, wood installations where okay. where our product kind of had a really beautiful presentation, totally custom, each shop different. Wow. It was really fun. That's really cool. That's really cutting edge marketing for a kid, you know? I didn't know what I was doing. I just had friends, you know. And again, it was kind of all tied back to the boards, you know. I just had friends. I just had it. Yeah. I was just in a good spot. I was in the right spot at the right time, I guess you'd say. Yeah. And um, so everything was hunky-dory until I got a call from some federal investigator guy. Some federal investigator guy was wanting to meet with me. Uh, he'd, he'd gotten complaints from some of the department stores saying that I was price-fixing or unfair trade or I can't remember what it was uh, you know something in the form of discriminatory business you know wow there's a big there's a big topic of law that that all falls under and so again at the time I didn't even, I was like what are you talking about yeah he's like well you know you can't just choose who you want to sell to and I was like sure you can it's ours you know of course I can he's like no nah, it isn't quite how it works that way and so I had to meet with this guy, and I didn't know what to say. So, you know, I, I huddled with some lawyer and kind of figured out that somebody, you know, got some advice that if we um, didn't have any more to sell, that was okay. But if we were sort of discriminating, so-called discriminating of who we were going to sell to, that wasn't okay. So that was pretty easy to, to fit into the into the conversation yeah and so when I met with him and he was saying what about this what about this what about this I was just like geez you know now these surf shop guys you know they're just doing so well we you know we're they're pretty much taking everything we can make and I'm pretty sure he knew you know yeah he, he knew that I knew that he knew it was all but he wasn't the worst guy you know he wasn't really out to hurt me but, yeah he just had to ask the questions. He had to do his job, yeah. and, the, and the department stores were not happy. Sure. You know, they, they saw all this money going around. And for the time when, you know, if you look at your surf shop, your, your standard run-of-the-mill surf shop at the time, 
they don't make money. Right. They, they're lucky if they if they're breaking even, you know, just paying their bills. And right at this moment in time, they were killing it. Wow. They were killing it. And I thought, you know, what we're doing here is we're setting up an impenetrable wall by staying um, loyal to the guys who helped us start it by um, having there be the ability for them to push a lot of it out the door we're going to be around forever in this position we, we, you know because you can see it's real easy to see how the other labels have come and gone it's such a cyclical business yeah you get really good you sell out to everybody you become a sellout you leave the door open for somebody to come in and do what we were doing and you you know that was ang tan that was op you know you get your run you make your money and then you become cachet right you know you you become kind of irrelevant right and and somebody else comes in and open and the door's open and i was like we don't have to do that right we don't have to. We don't have to leave leave the, ourselves exposed that way. We can stay right here, and we can market it this way for a lot longer than most companies do. Hmm. And so that worked for a while. But um, you know, like anything, when there finally becomes enough money, when there finally becomes enough demand, people change. Yes. You know, things change. Yes. And um, so somehow or another, the ownerships in Quicksilver, you know, going back to Jeff, Jeff got kind of, um, you know, it was kind of a hard period for Jeff at the time. And he, he ended up selling his shares to Mike Miller. And Jeff was my link, really my, my main link to it. Yeah. So then Jeff was gone and... You know, finally, some new guys kind of came into it that really didn't see things the way that I did and really saw the mass marketing of it a really good way to go. And um, it wasn't very long before I was kind of out of it. Hmm. And, um, you know, I didn't think that was going to happen. It wasn't what I wanted to have happen. I, I loved what I was doing more than I've ever loved anything. And, but somehow one day, there I was on the street without a job. And, wow. Uh, I was thinking to myself, gee, that, isn't that funny? I never bothered getting a written contract. I never bothered, uh, never bothered getting a whole lot of stuff that would have protected me here. And so long story, way around the block to tell you how I wound up in law school is... Uh, finally coming back to the notion that I really wanted to go to law school so I'd never ever be that stupid again yeah. to leave myself so unprotected and lose something that I love that dearly. Where'd you um, enroll in school? Uh, I just like moved to Oregon. Really? Moved to Oregon, went back, finished undergraduate and went right on through law school. And I know, Was that related to Jerry? Being no, he, he wasn't, wasn't there yet. The I kept trying. I when I was over there, I kept telling him, "Yeah, come. It's really cool." He's like, "Oh, why would I ever want to get cold?" Yeah, I got Honolulu Bay right here. Yeah, I don't want to go there. And it was funny. As soon as I got, as soon as I moved back here, that was kind of when he moved to Oregon. Did he move because of your prompting and all? No, not he, at all. He had totally other reasons. Yeah, they wanted to raise their kid over there. Okay. I think they wanted to um, 
have their kid be able to uh, have kind of an identity of his own. And I'm, I shouldn't speak for Jerry. Sure. I don't know, but I, I they had some reasons. So when you were in Oregon um, going to school. Were you shaping boards at all at that point? Uh, a couple of the years I took jobs in Europe. I went and worked for this family, Barlon, in um, Biarritz. Oh, okay. Um, but during the year, not really. Law school was really consuming. Hmm. What type of law were you looking to get into? Oh, I didn't even want to be a lawyer. I just, I just wanted to learn how to not be so stupid, you know? I, I just, just, I had a lot of anger, you know? I had a lot of anger and a lot of... Um, unresolved feelings and I wanted to channel it into something positive. I didn't want to just like self-destruct. So I just kind of threw myself into it not really knowing what I was getting into. I just thought the way I lost this was not being legally protected so I'm going to learn how to be legally protected. Um, that sounds like a logical step to take but moving to Oregon and completely removed from the surf industry seems um, that's interesting to me. Do you think maybe, I mean, what, I don't want to put words in your mouth, what, why do you think Oregon, you know, why, why remove yourself from the surf industry completely? Oh, well, I mean, um, the, the first step was, um, seeing every single guy walking down the beach in Quicksilver's when now I was out of it. Yeah. And kind of feeling insane, right? Like that, um, torment of, knowing that these guys had only been supporting me and at the same time wanting to kind of kill every one of them. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like I was basically going insane. So I felt like um, self-preservation meant I had to remove myself from that. And kind of a secondary reason was um, it's so nice here, I think. And I'd been out of school for so long, I was really, I was really concerned about my ability to focus and study. Oh, okay. If I had the distractions of um, all my favorite things. Yeah. So it was kind of like a self-imposed exile hmm. to focus better. And um, it, it turned out to be the right thing because really? it was so hard when I went back to school. It, I, I was really thinking, oh, I can't do it. Um, so... What brought you, it's kind of jumping ahead probably, but what brought you from there back to Maui? Or Yeah, so, I mean, all of a sudden I'm graduating law school. I don't have any more board clientele. I don't have any job prospects. I want to be back in Hawaii, and all of a sudden a job comes open at Legal Aid Society on Maui, and I just jumped for it. Wow. It's just like a friend of mine that I went to law school with who lives on Oahu, worked for Legal Aid on Oahu, and he was the one who found me the job, and he goes, I know you'd probably rather be back on Oahu, but there's an opening on Maui. You want to try that? I go, oh, I always like Maui, sure. And now all of a sudden I'm a lawyer, and I don't even want to be one. But for legal aid, it was kind of cool because it's like for poor people, and, um, you know, it, was, it felt good to, mm. to do something to help people. And, you know, it wasn't, wasn't very good money, but it, it was a way to learn how to be a lawyer, and was a way to be back on Maui, so it was kind of a good fit. Tom moved back to Maui. He reconnected with his old friend, Charlie Smith. All those hours that Charlie had spent in the shaping bay watching Tom were not in vain. He had parlayed his reputation as a surfer into a career as a shaper for some of Maui's best surfers. Tom and Charlie's friendship had transitioned roles, and now Charlie was Tom's gateway back into shaping. He worked full-time as a lawyer and eased his way back into building boards. 
Uh, after about 10 years, I kind of had the board thing going again, not at a level where I could exist on it completely. But after about 15 years, I got to the point where I could get rid of the lawyer thing. And I did, you know. Between 10 and 15 years, I just started easing out of law. Yeah. And um, back to the boards full time. And for about the last five years, I've just done um, boards full time. Wow. So now I'm kind of all the way around the block to get back to where I started. Yeah. <laughs> to figure out what really made me happy to begin with. Sure. And, uh, so how many boards do you think you're making a year at this point? Uh, I usually make about three a week. So what's that? 50 times 350. Yeah. You know, each one's custom. Each one's for a guy, you know. And some are pretty hard. You know, you get long boards with T-bands and, you know, all kinds of weird stuff. So, you know, it's not... And I don't use the computer and I don't do... Uh, I don't work with the pop-out guys. So, I mean, each one's a uh, handshake deal. And I like taking my time. I don't, Quantity doesn't really interest me. Right. We wrapped up our conversation less discussing Tom's history and more just learning about his current mindset and some of his philosophy. I was curious if the single fin designs that he helped popularize during the 70s still followed him to 2013. I think it, it, it's not such a factor now because Boards are so different that not very many guys want to ride, want to ride this. Okay. And um, but the collectors for sure. Yeah. All the collectors, that's what they want. And when you go other places to work, like say for example, going to Japan, a lot of times in order for the guy in Japan to sell my boards, he's going to try to try to market that single fin. Yeah. That 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 single fin. Um, reference that kind of goes with me yeah um so yeah it, it kind of has followed me in a way it's been a blessing and in other ways there's been times when i kind of feel like the guy ordering the board doesn't isn't really getting the, a board that would work the best for him you know he's kind of like getting something a little dated right well let me ask you this where have your design interests gone since you know the era of the single fin. Oh, I, I just I just do what people want. You know, I don't really look at myself as the um, the messiah of design. I, I look at my job kind of as being an interpreter. Oh, okay. You know, I really enjoy doing custom work. I really enjoy the interaction between people. And if the guy knows how to surf, I, I and he kind of has any clue about boards, I try to listen to him and look what he was riding and take some measurements and you know kind of go from there I, I very rarely try to influence people and say this is happening and this isn't happening but in terms of the little small changes that kind of happen every year you know I just think that that just sort of filters in automatically if you just sort of stay up with it yeah if you're working every day and you're making boards for good surfers you know those little changes happen just very slowly, you don't really notice them. Like say, for example, in the last couple of years, you know, the you notice the wide point kind of coming back up a little. Yeah. You notice the nose is kind of filling back out a little like they used to be. Mm -hmm. the, the tails aren't so narrow like they used to be, but for a while we had the opposite, right? We had everything back, everything was on the tail, the noses were super narrow, 
you know, not so long ago. Yeah. Just like five, five sure. to ten years ago, the wide point was back, everything was back, the noses were non-existent. Now, look how far we've come. And really, all those changes have just happened very slowly, year by year. Every yeah. year, just a small change. Every year, another little small change. But if you took a board from 10 years ago and a board from today, look at them and you go, wow, they're pretty different. Yeah, very much. The, the good guys now pretty much have like gone shorter, yeah. have, have made the nose fuller, and um, put the wide point up. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's such a more functional design than having everything back and not using the nose at all. Right. You know, you can kind of use the whole board with, with today's designs. How interested are you in keeping up with current media trends? Like, I mean, are you getting, are you subscribed to the magazines and do you watch the contests online or what's your involvement with the sport in that respect? Um, that's not so much. I mean, you have to do a little bit of that to sort of stay current, but I really don't like contests. I really don't like the um, concept behind them. Hmm. You know, the idea that um, somebody wins and somebody loses and the mentality of I want to beat you and the idea that we want to like try to bring masses to the beaches and with the full awareness that it's going to make the surf more crowded. and. You know, it, it's just so opposite to how I learned what surfing was. You know, for me, surfing was always about getting away from all that. Yeah. And um, keeping sacred the solitude that you got by going, going to uncrowded beaches. Yeah. You know, the idea of finding an uncrowded beach and then recruiting hundreds of thousands of people to come to it and exploit yeah. it. Also, six people can surf it and exclude the public right. who owns the beach. It's like totally wrong in every level. Yeah. Uh, it really bothers me that um, surfers have so sold out and have embraced that. And I really love the old style surfers that were all like opposite to that. And, so, at the same time, you have to respect the level of ability. The guys who are good are really good athletes. And, you know, in order to watch um, the boards and stay current, you know, you have to watch who's, who's good. Yeah. But no, I'm not really involved much in the magazines and don't really follow all the politics and don't have the money for ads and don't have a big marketing machine. I just do one board by one board by one board. And, you know, I really like keeping my life quiet, you know, kind of quiet and away from the masses. It's interesting that as we've talked, two things that you've mentioned multiple times is that you really enjoy human interaction, basically, you know, individual human interaction. Mm. But on the flip side, you've mentioned that you really enjoy solitude and not being social as well, which almost seem like conflicting um, traits in a sense. Yeah, you could say that. But in another sense, one allows the other, right? Because if you're too busy, if you're at every party, you're at every function, you're at every event, you're not going to have time. I usually don't do groups. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you wanted to try to generalize it, I'd, I'd probably say it. 
try to avoid big groups. Yeah. And just try to deal one on one with people. Yeah. I'm a man on fire, walking through your street with one guitar and two dancing feet. Only one desire that's left in me on the whole damn world to come dance with me. Well, there you have it, folks. The amazing and previously untold story of legendary surfboard shaper Tom Parrish. Coincidentally, right before this interview was scheduled to launch, or this episode was scheduled to launch, um, Tom ended up in Southern California. And he's here working out of Tim Stamp's shaping room. He's got a couple boards he's working on. And uh, so I was able to get together with him and I recorded these words that I'd like to now share with you. I'll be back afterwards to close out the show. Yeah, so uh, let's see. Um, my dad still lives in Lake Arrowhead. Oh, okay. And so um, I've got a job coming up to um, shape a bunch of boards in France starting in September. And I had a couple of weeks in between where um, I wanted to get in a visit with my dad. And um, so I wound up down here at Tim's shop stopped by one day to see what he was doing and I mean I, it was like the first thing I saw when I walked in his shop was like 13 block planes I was like oh my god I'm in heaven this guy's like this guy's my idol already I haven't even met him yet yeah <laughs> block plane to me is like the best tool there is for working on boards yeah it's probably the slowest tool sure but um, that's the one I use and I thought I had a lot of them but he has way more, and he has all these cool sizes, I mean. So I looked at his shop and his shaping room, and he's got the soft floors, he's got the block planes, he's got adjustable racks, and I was just like, this can work. Sweet. This can work real well. So we got a blank from U.S. Blanks, and I'm now working on uh, 10.6 for my friend Taka on Maui. And, uh, and sort of as a side note, as a, as a sort of present for Tim, for him being so incredibly generous for letting me work here, we're making him a old retro single fin. No way. You know, kind of, who knows what he'll do with it, but, you know, it's just kind of fun, just for the fun of it. I feel really lucky to, you know, get to meet one of the new guys who's real hot and, you know, real uh, in, the, in the mix over here and get to work with him and, you know, share some stuff back and forth. And Very cool. Hopefully it'll be as fun for him as it has been for me. And cool. Then I gotta leave in about a week, and Tim's gonna glass. I think Tim's gonna get uh, Taka's board glass and get it to U.S. Blanks, and it'll eventually get to Maui. And every, with any luck, everybody's happy. And, uh, awesome. You yeah. get to enjoy your time in France. Oh uh, yeah, that's pretty hard not to do. I, I think. know. I'm jealous, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really hard job, but it sure is fun. Yeah, yeah. Cool. That's about it. Good job. Thank you. Come dance with me. I'm a man on fire. 
All right. I hope that you enjoyed today's rebroadcast of our episode, The Untold Story of Tom Parrish. We are grateful for the opportunity to spend time with you, Tom, and appreciate your friendship and just you really taking the time to be thoughtful and participate in this show. So thank you for that. Thank you, listeners, for making 2014 a phenomenal year and helping grow Surf Splendor. We really look forward to 2015 and all that is in store and uh, sharing all that stuff with you, the listener. So if you'd like to engage in conversation, please do it on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. And of course, on social media, you can find us at Surf Splendor. And you can also send me an email through the website, which I always appreciate receiving. There's a couple that I, you know, ought to maybe read. Uh, just really kind stuff and interesting stuff. So maybe next show with Scott Bass, we can go over a couple of emails. But until then, this is your host of Surf Splendor, David Scales, saying Happy New Year. We will see you in 2015. Ciao. See your body's burning like a big sun.